And as we look at chapters 21 through 23, we're dealing with an area of the book of Exodus, which is called the book of the covenant. From the Ten Commandments on up through the end of chapter 23, God is listing the covenant that He's making with His people, the nation of Israel, and that they're going to be governed by. A lot of these things have to do with their relationship with one another. It's kind of like the Ten Commandments. Remember the Ten Commandments? Six of them focused on their relationships with one another. Four of them focused on their relationship with God. This is kind of the same. A lot of it has to do with their relationships with one another and how those things flesh out. What's the right thing to do in certain circumstances? But others have to do with their relationship with God. Them keeping the Sabbath, which was the sign of the covenant that they're in with God and and not following the gods of the people that are where they're headed to. But what I want to focus on a little bit is not quite as much the commands, but is kind of the principles under the commands. What are the principles that these commands are based on? Because they come out pretty clearly in the passage. And so while we're going to read through the commands, we'll elaborate on them a little bit, but most of them are pretty self-explanatory. But as we look at all the commands together, we start to see patterns emerge. And we see principles. And those principles are important. Because when we look at applying it to our nation and our, our life, we live in a society that has a whole list of laws. And we started with some laws. And we've grown. Our laws have continued to increase throughout time to try to apply principles of the law to our different circumstances and situations that we live through. Well, God's people is very similar. He starts out with the Ten Commandments. That's kind of the nutshell. And then He starts getting more specific and adding more commandments to it. And down through time, under Moses, He's actually going to add some more and some more as time goes on. But you know what? As we operate under the laws that are established by our government and look at the laws that were established for them by God, we see principles that are involved that connect them. And those are the things that we want to look at this morning. So the context of what's happening here is, remember, God has delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. He's brought them out of slavery and bondage. He's brought them out into the wilderness and they're headed toward the promised land. He's beginning to dwell with them. He's provided for them. He's giving them rules to live by. He's also going to have them prepare His dwelling place, His tent in the middle of them. That's what we're headed for as He leads them toward the promised land. They're at this point where God is saying, look, here's the covenant. Here's the rules you're going to live by as you enter into this covenant with Me. And He's also going to tell them, we'll look at next week, what God is going to say, this is what I'm going to do for you. So He's going to say, look, this is how you're going to live and conduct your lives as a society. This is what I'm going to do for you. And this is how you're going to worship Me. And this is our relationship. And the people are going to say, absolutely. Sign on to it. And they're going to go through a ceremony about that relationship. Just like we do with our marriages. Remember, marriage is the predominant covenant that we operate under in our society. And what do we do for a marriage? We both agree. We have vows. Things that we say that we're going to uphold. Our responsibilities and and enjoy together. And then what we're going to do and what... What about as we face sickness? What about as we, if we face poverty? And it defines that relationship and we celebrate it with a ceremony. And that's exactly what Israel is doing. So they're covenanting together. This is familiar to us. In our country, we did that. We established a covenant kind of right at the very beginning because when in our Declaration of Independence, we said that we recognize that there are certain inalienable truths. What are they? Life. Liberty, pursuit of happiness. 
Every one of you can quote those. Why? This, is, this has been, we're pushing about 250 years since those were first penned. Why? Because we're in that contract. We're in that covenant. We are Americans. We are American. These are truths that we still recognize as inalienable rights and that we still see as an important basis or foundation for our nation. Because of that Declaration of Independence, then we drew up another document. And this document is what we call our Constitution. This is the supreme law of the United States of America. And in our Constitution, we made this statement. It says, We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union... Notice how it starts. We the people of... In other words, it's saying, look, we are together. We are united in this. We are covenanting together as a family of people, as a nation of people. In order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. And if you read through the Constitution, it's a whole bunch of articles and amendments that, that we've put together, part of it back then and part of it getting amended down through time to be able to make it more perfect as time goes. And say, look, these are the rules, these are the guidelines that we're going to live by as a people as we live within this United States. It's not just within countries that do it. Our church has done it. At the forming of our church, they made a covenant. It says we covenant together. We are linking together. Just like our nation did earlier. It said we are binding ourselves together as one, as a society, to say this is how we're going to live. Our church does the same thing, and most churches do. It says, having been led, as we believe, by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, and on profession of our faith, having been baptized by immersion in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we do now in the presence of God, angels and this assembly most solemnly and joyfully enter this covenant with one another as one body in Christ. We engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to study the Bible, to walk together in Christian love, to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort, to promote its prosperity and spirituality, to sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines, to contribute cheerfully and regularly as God has prospered us to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, the spread of the gospel through all nations. We also engage to maintain family and personal devotions to scripturally educate our children, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, exemplary in our conduct, and to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. We further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember each other in prayer, to aid each other in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy in feeling and courtesy in speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure it without delay, and that we will not bring forward to the church a complaint against any member for any personal trespass against us until we have taken the first and second steps pointed out by Christ in the 18th chapter of Matthew. All private offenses, which can be privately settled, will never be made public. We moreover engage 
that when we remove from this place, we will as soon as possible unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's Word. We therefore band ourselves together as a body of baptized believers in Christ Jesus and adopt as our government plan of worship and service the following articles. And then it goes into the main body of the Constitution, outlining how our church is conducted and and the things that we do and how our officers are picked and all those different things. But the point is, when this church was founded, the people came and said, you know, we need a defining document. We need something that says who we are and what we're about and why we're doing this. Well, that's exactly what God is doing with the nation of Israel. He's saying, look, this is who you are and this is what you're about and this is what I'm about for you. And he calls them to covenant together to agree to this relationship with God as they follow him from there. And so that's what we're considering together this morning is that covenant that they made together to follow God. Now, as we look through these specific rules, we're going to find some different principles that are found within them. In fact, there's about five of them that come off very strongly. The first one that we find is a personal responsibility. In fact, you can quote just about anywhere in this entire three chapters and identify it as personal responsibility because he's constantly telling us what we're responsible for. I get awful tired sometimes of hearing about rights continually. I remember I had a pastor one time that said one of the easiest things to do is to convince somebody that they have some right that is not being met. As God deals with these people, He doesn't point out so much for them their rights as He points out for them their responsibilities. But it's interesting that the two go hand in hand. Because one person's responsibility in how he conducts himself is because if you cross a line, you offend the rights of the other person who is your neighbor. And so the two go hand in hand, but it's just a little bit difference in focus, which can mean a lot. As we look through this passage over and over, it continues to point to areas of personal responsibility, saying, look, you're responsible for your behaviors. You're responsible for your actions. You're responsible for your attitudes and words and everything that we deal with. Personal responsibility, we see it in chapter 21, right off in in verses 1 through 6. It says, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons and daughters, the wife and her children shall be her master's. And he shall go out alone, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, uh, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Slavery is an interesting thing in the Bible. The Bible does acknowledge slavery that it existed. God just got done delivering his people out from under slavery. But we'll find that even within the nation of Israel, slavery will be part of their experience. Now, to call this right here slavery is a little bit of a, a little bit of a misnomer, possibly. And we'll get into that more in just a moment. Even in the life of Christ and the apostles, slavery existed. In fact, a huge percentage of the citizens of the Roman Empire were slaves. Now, it's not necessarily always the picture in our mind that we have of slavery because, you know, a lot of them were tutors of children and managed households and, and that kind of thing as well. They didn't all have it uh, super bad, but nevertheless, they still were in servitude to somebody else, which just really goes against our grain as Americans. 
even though it didn't come right out and try to undo slavery, the principles that are within the Bible did bring the downfall of slavery. Even in the Old Testament with Moses, they weren't allowed to abuse their slaves. They weren't allowed to mistreat them. Notice even in the language here, it says, if the guy that's able to go free now says, I love my master, I want to stay here, he can. And so they were to keep a brotherly relationship, even though there was a servant-master relationship among them. And there's some laws put in there to protect it. In the New Testament, we find the same thing. We find the apostle really telling the people, look, if you're a, if you're a slave and you have a Christian master, then serve him like he's a Christian, like he's your brother in Christ. Do a great job for him. And he also told the masters, if you're a master and you have slaves, don't look down upon them as property or as slaves. Look at them as a brother. And you know what happened is that began to change the way that believers thought about people in slavery. And that's why when you can look down through the ages and it takes time, it's no coincidence that the nations that rose up against slavery like Britain and like the United States were Christian nations. And it's no coincidence that those efforts were led by Christian people to put an end to slavery because they saw the slaves as fellow people and even as brothers in Christ and they worked to put an end to it. But when I look at this personal responsibility, why would I call this personal responsibility? Now the reason is because let's stop and think of the context. God has just delivered all the children of Israel, not some of them, all of them, out from under the nation of Egypt. He's just given them their freedom. He's just brought them out of slavery and into freedom, and they're headed toward the promised land. So at that point, no Hebrew is a slave. But notice what he's talking about here. He says, when you have a Hebrew slave, what would happen that a Hebrew who's just been set free, what would happen that would end up with them being a slave? Well, here's what the deal was. When they get to the promised land and they get all their land divided up and they all start out, it's an agricultural society. And so they're going to be farming their land. And at first, everybody's fine. But you know what? Some people's crops are going to fail. And sometimes they're going to go through distresses and they're going to go through hardships. And they're going to experience death and sickness and things like that that are going to impact their way of life. They're not totally protected from the world's problems. And so some people are going to come on hardships and hard times. And what do they do at that time? Do they starve to death? No. God put into place ways that they could be taken care of, but it did, re- it did involve responsibility on their part to help take care of their own situation. And so in other words, when somebody came into hardships or hard times, obviously I think the first thing that they would often do is they would probably use charity and they would probably borrow. Both of those things are available to them. But if they couldn't pull themselves out, if they couldn't get back on top of their finances, then what would they do? The last option was to work it off. And that's kind of what we see here. Is that most Bible scholars will identify this passage. There are other passages that deal stronger with slavery. Most Bible scholars will look at, identify this passage as what we call indentured servitude. In other words, let's say that you had a crop fail and your farm was going under and the first thing that you did is you went to somebody else that was doing better and you borrowed from them to be able to plant for the next year. The next year you didn't do any better. Now you're in debt to this guy plus you got your farm's not doing anything. It's not producing anything. Well, how do you solve that debt? How do you take care of that? You go to work for him. 
And you work it off. And God put parameters on it. He said for a Hebrew servant, six years. That's it. The most that they can serve you is six years. At the end of six years, just like the Sabbath, there's a Sabbath, a rest day at the end of six days. There's a rest year also. He says at the end of that six years, they go free. They go back to their farm. What if they don't want to go back to that farm? You know, sometimes people aren't cut out for being their own boss or their own manager, handling their own estate. I remember when I was in construction back in Washington, there was a guy named Ron that worked for the same company I did. And uh, I worked on the same crew with him. I was a laborer while he was a second man. Every crew had a, a laborer, a second man, and a crew leader. And King Brothers liked to take you from one and move you up to the next. They were constantly training you so that they could grow their company. And Ron was a second man. And he was good at it. Had no desire to be a crew leader. Didn't like the responsibility for other people on himself. And he was good at nailing things together and, and, and building houses, but did not want the pressure at all. King Brothers, they kind of started to pressure him a little bit. We want to get you leading the crew. What do you think of that? Ah, no way, he said. I don't want, I don't want to do that. And they kept pressuring him a little bit, just bringing it up from time to time, bringing it up, trying to pressure him. Look, we want to get you running a crew. Seattle was the fastest growing place in the nation back then, and we were building lots of houses. They wanted another crew going. And you know what Ron did? He quit. And he went to work for another company that didn't care if he ever ran a crew in his life. That's not what he was built for. That's not where his interests lied. And so, you know what, some people are going to be like that. And so, for the people that, you know what, I'm happy here. I don't want the pressure of making those decisions. And I don't want the risks that came with my farm that I was given. That was available to them. But you see, there was a personal responsibility. If the way they managed things didn't work out, there was avenues to make it work out, but you had to take the avenues. You had to make it work. You had to exercise your personal responsibility. And you know what, this whole idea of the servitude and stuff, I know as Americans, really sets hard with us. But you know what, I think we need to come at it with a little bit of humility. It's, it's kind of like this. Every once in a while, I'm involved in a discussion having to do with marriage. And uh, occasionally, in fact, just last week, I don't even remember where, but the subject kind of came up and we were laughing about picking, picking spouses for our kids. Arranged marriages. We were kind of laughing about and joking about arranged marriages. And how, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll pick them. We'll pick the spouses for them. We'll be better off that way. And we all kind of laughed at it. But I often like to point this out in the middle of that as I say, you know, we can laugh about arranged marriages and cultures and look at how backward those cultures are for their arranged marriages. But you know what? I think we ought to keep in mind that our success rate is like 50%. 50% of the marriages in our nation are failing. My whole point in it is this. I'm not arguing for arranged marriages. My whole point in it is this. We're not really cornering the market on the way to do things if our failure rate is 50%. We're not arguing from a strong position. If our marriages were succeeding like at the 90% level, then I would say people ought to pay attention to us. They ought to listen to us in, in, in the way we do things because our, our marriages are making it and they're strong. But you know what? Actually, when you look at our statistics, maybe we're not quite in such a strong position. Well, the reason I bring that up is because I feel like the same when I'm dealing with this issue on what God did here with indentured servitude or with slavery. Because you see what God is doing is He's recognizing that in this broken world, people are going to fail. 
And he leaves a lot of the responsibility for what happens on them, but gives them a way to overcome it. Gives them that second shot at it. And so when I look through and I think through the scenario and what's going to happen and how, what do you do? I recognize that it's a very complex and a very difficult situation to come up with an answer for. In our country, what do we do? You know what we do when somebody fails like that? We do bankruptcy. They can file for bankruptcy and they can go before a judge, before a bankruptcy judge, before a court. Now look over your situation and what's the chance of these people pulling through this situation? What's the chance of them paying off their debtors and getting back on top of things? And if it doesn't look like they can make it, then they can declare bankruptcy. And most of the people that go for bankruptcy get it. And you know, on one hand, you look and you say, well, that's a pretty big relief. They were buried in debt. Maybe it was their fault and maybe it wasn't. One article that I was reading on bankruptcy this week, it said, either through bad choices or bad luck, you end up in these kinds of situations. Is that a great way to deal with it? Because we're going to criticize the idea of indentured servitude as somebody working it off. And what if the person had more debt than they could work off in six years. Well, they're, they're apparently relieved of it at the end. But they did have to take responsibility for at least six years worth of labor to work that off to try to get back on their feet in that way before the last part was just forgiven. But when we look at it in our society and we declare bankruptcy and then in bankruptcy, then we're just forgiven of our debts. Now, there's a price to pay because your credit suffers for like seven to ten years. But there's agencies out there to try to help you with that as well. And I think, you know, is that a good thing? And you know what? Sometimes you look at it and say, well, boy, this person is really benefited by that or this person is really helped by that. But then, you know, you've got to look on the other side. What about the guy that loaned him the money? Is he just out? Yeah. When I look at it and I try to put myself in both scenarios, both situations, it's a tough issue. It's a hard issue because you don't want people just buried... No second chance, no way to work your way out of it, no way to come out of it. But also just saying, you know what, go ahead and go free and start a new life and this guy over here is out $50,000 or $100,000 or whatever he's into you there. I think a lot of the reasons that we're accepting of a lot of these things is because a lot of them are impersonal. Right? Where, where do we go to get money? Where do we go to get a loan? We go to a bank. We go to a large organization, a corporation. And so it's impersonal. If these Israelites were going to borrow money, who are they going to borrow it from? Their neighbor. You have $100,000, just to put a number on it. It's going to take care of you in your old age. It's going to be your retirement plan. But your neighbor's in a spot. They need a hand. They need help. And so you take half of it and loan it to your neighbor so that he can get on top of things in his farm. He can get that good crop going. He'll pay it back over time. So you'll get it back. You'll still have it by the time you get to old age. But you can help your neighbor out at the same time. And it can increase what you have too because there's interest involved. But then what happens if your neighbor faces an illness or something? You know, maybe, maybe something not even, not his fault. Well, then what happens? You feel horrible for your neighbor, but can you afford a $50,000 bath out of your own retirement fund? See, that's my point. Is that fair? See, the point, we, we look back and, and some of these things that God put in place for the Israelites to work their way out of a catastrophe, work their way out of a situation. And a lot of times we look back at that and say, that is a horrible, that is a horrible thing to do. That idea of slavery, that's horrible. That's the whole point. The whole situation is horrible. But what's a, what's a fair way to deal with it? Where does justice come in? Well, 
the way God outlined it, a, a measure of personal responsibility stays in it. But the person has a way to get out of that, has a way, but they got to work their way out. They're going to put in some time and some effort as they take care of it. But also, not only that, but we see personal responsibility in lots of other areas. Uh, as we look at uh, uh, later on in the same chapter, verses 28 and following, it talks about dealing with animals even. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten. And so, um, but it goes on to say that, that if you own an ox and it gores somebody, it, it kills somebody, that you're not responsible for that. But it, then it turns around and says, but if this ox had a, had a reputation of goring people, it had shown itself to be a threat in the past, and you didn't do what it took to keep it away from people, then you're responsible. In fact, they were responsible to the same level as if they did the goring themselves. Uh, they could even be put to death for taking the life of another through their animal. But then we look uh, even down into chapter 20, uh, 22, in verses 5 and following, it says, If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over, or lets his beast loose, and it feeds in another man's field. So it's, so it's all things like, hey, if your animal eats up the crop of your neighbor, you've got re- to reimburse your neighbor for those, for those crops. Right, And so you have to be personally responsible for what even your animals do because they're your responsibility. It goes on and talks about what if you, what if you borrow something from your neighbor? And it, and it says, look, if you borrow something from your neighbor and he's not there and you're using his, maybe a tool or whatever it is that you're using, you're using his tool and it breaks, you replace it. That was your fault. But it says, but if your neighbor is with you, in other words, your neighbor takes his tool and comes to help you and breaks his own tool, then you're not at, you're not really at fault there. He was overseeing it. It was his tool. He's overseeing it. And it's a tool that's probably already got some use into it. So you're not at fault there. And he says, but if he rents it to you <laughs> and you break it while you're renting it, he says, then you don't have to pay for it because he's hiring it out. And so he's got figured into it that it's going to get some wear and tear and it's going to eventually break. And so you don't have to pay for the repair of that then. He's got, so you see it just deals with lots of little areas like this. Lots of little areas. But what is the crux of all of these areas? Personal responsibility. We need to be responsible for our own actions. We need to be responsible for our own families and pets and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, if your pet kind of goes crazy one day and bites somebody, that's not really your fault. If your pet bites one person and then bites a second person, it's all on you. You see, that that's what he's... It's just common sense. But it's just personal responsibility. Look, if I face some hard situations in my life, if I make some stupid decisions, it's on me to work my way out. You know what? If a catastrophe takes over in my life or a catastrophe hits in my life and through no fault of my own... I'm in a bad spot, it's still my bad spot. Unless somebody else has done it to me maliciously. It's still my bad spot. Now there needs to be some ways that we put in as society to help people work, get their way out of those bad spots. But I think personal responsibility still needs to be part of the equation. Well, as we look on also, not only is personal responsibility one of the major principles, but justice. Justice is a main part of these principles as well. Look in, uh, in chapter 22 and verses 21 through 27. 
It says, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, and they, and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. And so he, he, notice what he says to him here. He says, look, you, you don't take advantage of people that are vulnerable. Who is the most vulnerable people in the society? The widows, the orphans. He says, look, if you don't treat them well, if you take advantage of them, I'm going to make sure your children become orphans and your wife becomes a widow, and so it will fall back upon you. This is God dealing with them. But he's saying, look, there needs to be justice. No, no matter if you're a widow, no matter if you're an orphan, the next thing he's going to go into is poverty. No matter if you're poor, you get a just society. The rich and the poor operate by the same principles. The, the, the person with an intact family and the person with a tore apart family under the same principles of justice. He says, if you lend money to any of my people, <clears throat> excuse me, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like the money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering and it is cloak for his body. In what else will he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. And then as we look back even to, to chapter 21, we find that God's justice, it extends to the poor, it extends to the, um, those that are in vulnerable situations, it also extends even to the unborn. In chapter 21, verses 22 through 25, it says, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children uh, come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her will surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judge is determined. So if there's a scuffle between a couple of men and a woman gets hit that's pregnant and she gives premature birth because of it, even if everything turns out fine, that guy's getting fined. And it says the husband can set the, set the amount, but then that gets turned over to the judge and the judge will decide what's right and that guy will pay the fine for whatever the case is. But then notice what happens. It says in verse 23, But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And so God says that infant in the womb who can't protect itself, if you do something to hurt that child, then you're going to pay. And you're going to pay with whatever happened to that child. If it comes out blind, you're going to lose your sight. If it, if it dies through the thing, then you're going to die. The, the penalty for hurting the child is the same penalty as if you hurt the mom herself. And so God's justice extends. This is one of the big reasons that we are huge pro-life because God, life is in the hands of God and He's the author of it and He's the only one that can take it away. God looks at the unborn child within the womb of the mother and God puts His protection on that child to the same extent that He would protect the life of the mother herself. And so God is just. 
And we look at this as we go on through the passage. We don't have time to read it all, but God says on one hand, He says, look, you will not, you will not trample the poor. You will not trample the poor. But you know what He also says in the same passage here? He says, you will not favor the poor either. Complete. It's like blind justice. You're not going to trample the poor. You're not going to take advantage of the poor just because you're more powerful than he is. He's going to get just treatment. But you know what? You're also not going to favor the poor just because of sympathy for his position. It needs to be just. The same blind justice that the poor guy gets, the rich guy should get as well. You know, that's one of the things that I think that we really got to be careful with in our society. In fact, a lot of the, a lot of the protests and the things like that that are out there right now, I think are not, they're very close to violating that, if not violating it. There are people before the trials even start, begin to take place, there's people out there saying, if this isn't a guilty verdict, then we're going to trash this place. That is completely wrong. The whole point of the whole process needs to be justice. You know, I think back, uh, what, a couple weeks ago, I think it was, the verdict came in on, you remember the Michael Brown case, where the, the, that was the one that first started the whole hands up, don't shoot thing, and everybody was riled, and that cop needs to be, he needs to be punished to the maximum and all that. And then we find out that Michael Brown had just robbed a convenience store, that he attacked the police officer, that he went for the police officer's gun, that even after all that, he was charging the police officer. He never put his hands up and said, don't shoot. He, even after that, he was charging the police officer when the police officer shot him and all that stuff. And we found out all that over time as, as those things came in. And they still refer to him as being a case of police brutality. Well, two weeks ago, or about that, maybe maybe even a week ago, the verdict came in that the police officer was exonerating and it was a clean shooting. That he was within his... Any chance that guy's working the beat today? Absolutely not. What, what happens to him? He does his job... And he never gets to work that job again. His career's down the tubes. Is is that just? That's not just either. And see, that's what we got to be careful of. These things when we rush to judgment should always be slow to judgment. Always let the facts come in. Always let the you know. Right now we're dealing with the the George Floyd thing, and I don't know where all that's going to come in. Already I noticed we got more video and more facts now than we did at the beginning that are a little bit revealing. But you've got to let those things come in. You can't rush to judgment. And that's exactly what the Bible says in this passage. Look, you don't, you don't take the, the, the side of the powerful and you don't take the other side out of sympathy either. It needs to be just. God says, I'll protect the widow, the orphan, even the unborn. They all need the same protection. Well, not only is there justice, but there's also deals with an element of punishment. In other words, it's not just always an even for even kind of a thing. There's a punishment put into the penalties uh, against these things because uh, to make you think before doing that again or to try to get these things to not happen. Now, we find that mostly in chapter 22, verses 1 through 4. It says, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep 
for a sheep. And then it goes on and says, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. Now the point is, you know, shortly before this, they were talking about if an animal kills another animal or, or that kind of thing happens, then what happens? And it's basically one for one. Right? If you have a, if you have an animal that killed the other, another guy's, your neighbor's animal, then he said, here's what happens. If, if there's been no tendency on that animal before to kill other animals, then you take the animal, the ox that is dead, and you split it in half, you both get half the meat. You take the other animal that's still alive, and you sell it. And you split the money that you got for that. So in other words, everything's divided, even up. Now, if your animal has shown a tendency to attack other people's animals, then you just have to pay for his other animal. You're in the fault on that. But now when it gets to this, what if I steal somebody else's animal? Well, even for even would be I took his animal, I give him his animal back. That would be even for even. But now the stakes go up. If you steal that person's animal, you replace five. If you steal his sheep, you replace four. And so, see, now there's a penalty built into it. Why? Because if you want a society where there's not a lot of theft, you've got to have a high price to pay. You've got to have stiff penalties if you want to discourage that kind of behavior. I know when one of my kids, when they were real little, a neighborhood, neighborhood kid uh, down the road had, uh, had a pack of gum. And my kid apparently wanted a piece of that gum and the neighbor kid wasn't too uh, ready to have it, but when it was sitting or wasn't too wanting to let him have any. And so when it was sitting there, he took a piece and ate it. And then uh, the kid, or I think it was the kid's dad, came down to my house and told me that my kid took gum from his, his kid. And I said, well, we'll take care of that. And I took my kid, and I took him down to the drugstore, and I, I said, how much did you take? Just one piece. I just ate one piece, Dad. Okay, now you're going to buy a whole pack. And I'm sure at that point he was thinking, cool, I can give him his piece back and I've got a whole pack. I said, you know what? You're getting none of it. None. You're, you're, the whole pack is going to the neighbor kid. And you're going to go down there and you're going to apologize for taking his stuff and you're going to, and you're going to pay him back. A whole pack for one piece. Why? Because I wanted to make it stick. I wanted him to know that this is so not right. You know that this is not yours. You got no business. You got no business with it, and uh, and that's what God has done. Is He builds that punishment into this? You know, there's a lot of debate and stuff even within our society about what is our prison system for? Is it for rehabilitation or is it for punishment? Both. We don't want them to come out of there being worse criminals than when they went in, which is often the case. We want them to be rehabilitated. But you know what? There needs to be a punishment that goes with it. When you violate the laws of our country and of our civil society, there needs to be a penalty so that people hesitate to do it again. There needs to be that price. But then also there's opportunity. There's opportunity. We read in one passage, we read about if you're going to loan to your countrymen that is poor, 
give up to them without interest. And so built into society here was a no interest loan. But look, if you're my neighbor and you're going through hardships, I'm going to loan you the money, but I'm not going to charge you any interest. You get a no interest loan to help you come out of your situation. We've already talked about the servitude. You can hire yourself to your neighbor as a, as a servant for up to six years to try to pay off your debt to him, to try to get back on top of things financially. And then it also, it also dealt with, uh, deals with the Sabbath. In one part of the passage that we didn't read, um, he deals with the Sabbath, and that is in chapter 23. In chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, it says, For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but in the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. And so he told Israel, he says, Look, you're going to harvest all your crops for six years. And the last year, you're not. You're going to let the land rest. That Sabbath principle, God built into so many different ways in Israel. So it's a yearly Sabbath. Every year, or every six years, they'd take a year off, no harvesting the land. But built right into that was a program. He said, that way, the people that are poor, that don't own the fields, that have had some tough luck, they can go in and harvest your fields. They can go in and have food for their families. They can start to store some things up. In fact, Israel would expand this later. Eventually, God's going to tell them, look, you farmers, when you're harvesting your fields, you're not allowed to harvest right to the edge. Leave the edge. Kind of brings back in personal responsibility because in their welfare program, they had to go out to the field and pick it themselves. They actually had to do some work to get it. But... But that's what the edge was left for. The edge was left for the people to come out and roll up their shirt sleeves and get some food for their family. He also told them, when you're harvesting your field, whatever your workers drop, if they're carrying some stuff over to the wagon and they drop it, that stays on the ground. Don't pick it up. That's why when you read the beautiful story of Ruth and Boaz, Boaz tells his workers, hey, throw a little more on the ground over by her. Let's make sure she's well taken care of. Because that was part of their program. And you see, that's one of the things that God gave us, gave them was He gave them opportunity. Look, if you're in hard times, here's some opportunities. Every six years, there's going to be fields laying fallow that you can go, you're free to go on and to set aside things for your family. You're free to go pick around the edges and to glean behind the harvesters for your family. And so He gave those opportunities. You can, if you've gotten in hock to your neighbor to where you can't get out of it, you can go work for him and work that off up to six years and then you're forgiven of it after that. And so there's ways for them, there's opportunities for them to get in. And you know what? That's one of the things that I think is important. I know I've had this discussion and I'm, I'm all about personal responsibility. And I think we ought to be earning our own way and working hard to do so. Absolutely. But you know what? I also recommend, or recognize that some people through no fault of their own don't have the same shot that I had. You know, when I look at my family, I was brought up in a family that was, that was intact. It was intact and not, and so I had the influence of my mom and the influence of my dad my whole life growing up. And, and it was a family that stressed personal responsibility. Paying what you owe. Working hard. And when you did something to mess up, you paid the price. 
And so they emphasize personal responsibility. That put me in a good place for life. That put me in life with a good work ethic and some, and some opportunities to be able to jump into and to start to make my own way. But you know what? I remember when we used to take our teenagers down to Gospel Hill, a day camp for inner city kids on the north side of St. Paul. And I remember seeing those kids come through and thinking, they don't have the shot I had. Because they don't have intact families. And it's getting worse and worse all the time. In fact, I read something on it a couple of weeks ago. It said in the 1950s, some of the communities uh, that they're dealing with major problems in today, some of those communities, or those communities had a, an average of 20%, 20% of the, of the moms were raising kids by themselves. In those same communities today, 70% of the moms are raising those kids by themselves. And you know what? When I look, I was, I was brought up in a, in a rural community, a farming community in eastern Washington state with good family, good values. There's a lot of people that don't have that same shot I have. And so because of that, what do we need? We need something. I think it's in opportunities. You've got to create opportunities for people to succeed. I don't think we need to create handouts. Because I think handouts just promote laziness. I think handouts work the opposite way. If you want proof of that, just look at what we did to the reservations. Handouts aren't a great thing. But opportunities, opportunities they need. Well, that's exactly what God did in His passage. He gave them ways that if they fell into trouble, hardships, they had ways to work out of that. They had things that they could overcome. They would take effort on their part, but they could do it. And lastly, respect. God made within that system a demand for respect within the system. He says in chapter 21 and verse 17, in that part of the system, He's dealing with parents. And He says, Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. It's quite the penalty. You know what? I bet they had very little cursing of father or mother in those days. Chapter 22, verse 28. He says, you shall not revile God or curse a ruler of my people. Respect for authority is built into this system. And you know what? I think that's where we're paying a heavy price right now. We've gotten to the place in our nation where we curse and ridicule our rulers on a daily basis. And it's not right. It's totally fine to disagree on policies and to argue vehemently over policies. It's completely wrong to be continually ripping to shreds somebody that you disagree with. And that's exactly where we are in our society today. And you know what? I remember when these riots first started. And down in Minneapolis, they pull out and they let the precinct get burned. And the response is, better burn a building than lose a life. I don't think that's necessarily true. Because there's a principle here. There's the rule of law that's at stake. The rule of law is what gives us a civilized society. If you have trouble seeing that, just turn the news back on. 
Because what happened? We let them burn down the precinct, and all of a sudden, crime rates are skyrocketing. Chicago, there are record numbers of shootings in Chicago, New York, Seattle, Los Angeles, San Francisco, all these, Portland, all these places. Look at the violence. Look at the loss of life, the senseless loss of life that has happened. Because we said, oh, as long as nobody dies, let them burn the place. No. The law has to stand up using force, even lethal force if necessary, to maintain the rule of law. That's exactly what God did. God says if you curse your father or mother, you're going to die. You will not, you will not curse the leader of my people. There will be a respect level here. Without that respect level, everybody's in danger. There's a principle behind that. It's kind of like the old, the old saying, there is a peace that lies, exists only on the other side of war. It's the same kind of thing. It's a, it's a principle that's involved here. We cannot have civilized society without law being firmly in place and defending that principle at all expense. Well, as we look at it, as God gave out His laws to His people and we consider the laws that we live under within our society, there's definitely some things. If you're gonna, if you're gonna live in civilized society and carry out law in a successful way, it's gonna have these principles. It's gonna have a high emphasis on personal responsibility. Everybody responsible for their own situation, their own actions, trying to work their way through those things. It's going to have justice at the heart of it where it doesn't matter if you are rich or poor or an unborn baby in the womb, you get the same justice that everybody else does. Um, it's going to have opportunity built into it, places where people won't be hopeless, where they'll have opportunity to work out of their areas, to apply their personal responsibility and to overcome. And then also it will have respect. Respect for the institutions that are core to our survival the family, the relationship of children and their parents, and relationship of us to our government and our leaders.